Emily's list was the best place because I was, first of all, I always wanted to work for pro-choice women. Everything about it, you know, really looking at continuing to increase the amount of women, but also at the state level and the local level, that to me felt great. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Jerry Prado. When I interviewed her, she had recently ended her tenure as chief impact officer at Act Blue. Jerry has built a substantial career as a political operative on many Democratic campaigns, starting in Colorado and New Mexico, and worked at the AFL-CIO, the DSCC, Hillary Clinton for President, Emily's List, and many other key organizations. It was really fun to catch up with Jerry. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Jerry Prado. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Jerry, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Oh, hi, I'm Jerry <laughs> Prado. <laughs> My name is Jerry Prado, pronouns she, her, hers. And I had met Nathaniel, I'll start there, in 2008 in historic Boston, Virginia, for Hillary Clinton's campaign. It's really Boston, but I like to put the historic in front of it. I have been in and out of campaigns, political organizations, and some nonprofits some government, some official side work for, I'm squinting if you can't see me because I don't want to date myself too much, but yeah, about 20 years, maybe even a little bit more. 20 years seems like just a very recent thing. You're so much younger than me, so just get used to that. 20 as a kid, well, actually 20 as a young adult, three years in a college, two years in a college. I have a daughter who's 20, so, you know, a substantial career in progressive politics at this point. I think I have a career with a lot of different experiences. I've been really fortunate to work with great people. I've been working, I've been fortunate to work for um, great people and great causes. And they're all things that have been really important to me, you know, and even if at the time I did something, I haven't done something since that was still a very important experience issue and reason I was working on that. So yes, I like to think substantial. It's strange when you're hopping around from campaign to campaign. I learned amazing things in every step of the way, so I feel very fortunate. Where'd you grow up? Well, I was born in San Francisco and grew up right outside of San Jose, Morgan Hill, until middle school, and then came to Colorado. I consider myself a Coloradan, though native Coloradans may frown upon that. And that was in Aurora, which is you know suburb of Denver, then I went to school at CU Boulder. So, and I grew up on the hill in Boulder, right? And walked through that university all the way to Boulder High School 
every day, for example, and know that area well. Nathaniel, my, one of my best friends and I just went up there this weekend because she was in town. She's like, I'd love to see Boulder. We drove around the hill. Doesn't even look the same. There's all these construction projects. They've changed the pathing around there. It's really weird. That little cool theater is a liquor store. Anyway, I was uh, I just could not believe how much it changed. But yes, fellow Coloradan. Yep. Tons of building in Boulder. My brother was a county commissioner and now is county attorney. Uh, so we still have a lot of family connections there. What did you study at CU Boulder? Political science. And the reason was because pre-law was like political science in Colorado. Right before that, I was molecular biology. This is embarrassing, but I'm going to tell it. I was a biology major, in molecular in particular. And one of the things I decided I couldn't do, one, it was amazing. I wanted to go into research, but I got really sick from the cells, the cell replication. I could not sit through the classes. Really embarrassing. What about it made you sick? When cells replicate and you yeah. see them split and they go, I mean, there <laughs> are terms for it, but just watching this mound of cells grow. You found it. Couldn't stomach it. Actually, thinking about it right now is, is upsetting me. It's the weirdest thing. It's the only thing on the planet. Put a huge spider in front of me. I don't care. That, for some reason, I have a huge problem with. And again, if you want to go into medicine or research, that's probably frowned upon to not be able to look under the microscope for things. So It's funny how the minds work, isn't it? I have a younger daughter who she can't look at things with a lot of little holes in them. I've heard about that. I understand that. I respect that. That's a there was an American horror story, if anybody watches that show, that they had like a they had an episode around fears. And one of them was that I forgot the name of the, the whole situation was. And oh, I can understand that. What did you do coming out of college? Well, because I wanted to go into law, my friends and I packed up a truck and moved to New York City because one, I've never been to New York City. And <laughs> so that, of course, you just go and move there. Right. I'd never been there. And I went with two of my my close friends I started doing, I don't remember exactly, I think I worked in a law firm and was in a wait list to go to work at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. So I worked at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, not a lawyer, but as a trial preparation assistant. So I was the person who would go to one police plaza or one PP for the, the New Yorkers and different places to pick up evidence. I would also be the one for different trials to go and like submit things so that prisoner would be sent in from Rikers. And you worked for about seven attorneys and they would all be different levels. So some would have felonies, some would have misdemeanors. And I, I wanted to go to law school because I was like, I want to change the way that, that laws work. And, um, you know, I see that there's an overrepresentation of people of color in prisons and the criminal justice system. And this was, gosh, 1996, seven. Oh, geez. And so when I was there, unfortunately saw so many terrible things that happen to people and that people do to each other, but also realize that that's not the way to change laws. At that point, one of the ADAs, the assistant district attorney said something really amazing to me that just hit me, which he said, when you get to this point, you're enforcing bad laws. You're not changing them. He's like, you can in some ways, but at some point you're enforcing things, even if you don't believe in them. And so to me, that told me, well, then I want to think more about policy. And at that point, I was applying to law schools and doing all that. So what did you do next? Well, I decided to move back to Colorado because <laughs> to those who don't know, New York is very expensive. Working for the um, the, assistant, or the Manhattan District Attorney is not um, didn't pay that well, but I decided to come back here and go to grad school. So 
entered into CU Denver for Masters of Public Policy and Org Management, I believe it was. And at the time, I also started working at this community nonprofit called NewZed, which is in West Denver. Actually, I was working, <laughs> this is all so interesting. Now they think about it. Um, HUD had a project and they were going through housing testing, which is basically putting together these programs to see when you're going in to rent or buy, you know, is there a bias towards people of color, against people of color? There's also a disabled component of that because there are laws that you're supposed to enforce, right? Especially if buildings are built after a certain time. So we wanted to make sure too that everything was properly built so that it could be accessible to people with disabilities. So I did that housing testing while I was going to grad school. And at NewsEd, there was this woman, young woman, my age at the time, 24, 25, who was like, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Desiree Sanchez and I'm running for office. I was like, what? <laughs> you're my age. That's ridiculous. I go out drinking every night with my friends and can barely pay my rent. That seems silly. But anyway, I'd never been involved in politics. And she just kept coming over and saying, hey, you want to volunteer for me? Hey. And she was working at the same place, too. And finally, I was like, sure. Okay fine, I'll do this. I'm still going to school and working at NewsEd. And she had like a staffer who is, you know, at that time means somebody who's, if anything, getting maybe $100 every two weeks, if you're lucky. That's that's rolling in it for a state legislative campaign. So she was, she was running for this, for House District 2, which is West Denver, a quickly gentrifying area. And she was from that area, Latina, LGBTQ. And so she wanted to run. Her parents had been involved in government for a while, but she was running for house district. And so I went and worked with her and, you know, the other staffer. And we had, I think she had raised maybe $12,000. And the opponent was terrific guy, attorney, white, new to the district. And he raised like 60000 And we just walked and called and organized. And I was like, this is really interesting. And she won. This was a primary? Good point. Yes, it was Denver, so it was a primary. I don't even remember who ran the general, if there was a general. So yes, it was a competitive primary, so you're going after Dems. But again, the gentrification, you could see it, right? The different parts. But she she received, if I recall, so long ago, a good share of the gentrifying part because she was young and just worked. Is gentrifying code for white? Oh, yeah, I should say that. Yes, I should say yes. Mostly it's mainly white, but it's also that People are buying houses and housing for much more expensive prices. So people who live there couldn't live there anymore, right? We see this in every major city, if not suburbs at times too, you get, or actually a lot these days, people get priced out. People who grew up there, people who live there, work there, get priced out. And a lot of those tend to be, as we all know, blue collar workers, teachers, firefighters, people who aren't making three times as much, if not more as, you know, some of these attorneys who come in, that's just not what, what they're making. So she came out of public service. That was where she grew up. And so it was really important to her that she ran in that district. And she ended up really doing a great job for the entire district. That's why she went in there, not just people that she grew up with. The guy who ran against, they ran against each other. He was, you know, he was fantastic, got behind her, was really supportive of her afterwards, which is not typical, especially in a primary. I think primaries are harder than generals because it's your family you're running against. Yeah. So then she went to the legislature and I ended up being an assistant for her, like a legislative assistant. And I was still getting my master's. She ended up getting sick and had to step down after a term. One of her big supporters was Congresswoman Diana DeGette, 
first district here, Denver, surrounding areas. And she had um, her chief of staff and I had gotten to know each other because of they came and worked for Desiree during her race. And so they called me up and said, hey, do you want to come work for the congresswoman in her district office? And I was like, what? That's a thing? <laughs> so I stopped there to say, and the rest is history. You know, the rest is like, let's let's go to the next thing, the next thing. I did not finish my master's degree. I, it bothers my parents tremendously. I'm like three classes away from finishing, but I could never imagine going back to school now. But that's just what happened. From there, it was just momentum, I suppose. It's so common, the story of kind of the entry into politics as a profession. One thing leads to another. It's so true. And as all along that process, though, and my parents, I should say this, my parents are from Honduras. So I'm first generation. They're immigrants. And they couldn't they couldn't do the things that you can do here as far as voicing your opinion and, and voting and all of that incredibly important work. And so what's always been true to me is a sense of justice. So no matter what, you know, no matter what job I do, there's something where the overlying value is why can't everybody do the same thing? That's that sounds very trivial and overly simplified, but it's really why is anybody else better than the other? Why does somebody else deserve better, more rights than this group of people? And so that's no matter what I did was always with the thought that I'd like to change that. Your family really helps instill something in you. And with my parents, it was they believed, you know, when they came here, they're like, we, we thought to come here. This is the best country in the world because you, I, we could do things we could never, you know, we could never do in our own country. And they lived under fear and their siblings were victims of violence and, you know, died in that country. So that really shaped, you know, why I wanted to do these things. And just getting to see different experiences from their side was really, um, well, of course, shaped my entire world. So you did some stuff in Colorado politics for a while. What did you learn about Colorado and the people that you're working with? Yeah, I think Colorado, I mean, listen, I love this state. It's still very homogenous. I think that people either think of Denver or Boulder or the mountains. They think that that's it. But, you know, when you go out to the plains, there's also obviously a huge farmland. You go to the the very west and Grand Junction, it looks very different. And there are people who have been here for generations who are Latino or, you know, indigenous. And I think that that population, though that's not specific to Colorado, often gets lost because people think of the people moving in from California or Texas to Denver, (laughs) the kids who go to school in Boulder, and again, the skiers. While I grew up in some of those areas and saw distinctions um, in populations, I think Getting to go to different places in different neighborhoods, even different neighborhoods within a place is an incredibly valuable experience. And so I, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Metro Denver area, but then started to just travel around the state, which I think is obviously a gorgeous state. But yeah, I I started learning that, oh, there's a whole other Latino population outside of Denver, frankly, well far. And they're farmers and, you know, built those communities. So I feel fortunate that I got to see that. I mean, the whole southern part of the state around Pueblo and yeah. very, very Hispanic. But it's very held to certain areas, right? So the rest of the state is pretty, pretty white. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I loved Colorado. The West, you know, this is a different type of West. I think that, you know, people think of the West or Southwest and they think it's all the same. It's a very different state to state, like the Northeast or the South. Everything has its own personality and, and different history. You know, it's interesting to learn that in Colorado, which I think then made me want to go to all these different states. It's like, oh, I can go to every state and learn about this or different things. That's interesting. 
How did you hook up with a Kerry for president campaign? <laughs> well, I had a fantastic boss who I met, you know, when I was working for the coordinated congresswoman lent me to the coordinated campaign here in Colorado. It was 1992. So you might remember Tom Strickland ran, ran for or against Wayne Allard, Senator wait, Wayne Allard. Wait, do you mean 1992 or do you mean 2000? Like, no, was that 2002? Yeah. 2002. I graduated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. There you go. Um, good correction. And I met this, this guy who was in from SEIU. His name was Luis Navarro. So everybody may have crossed paths with Luis Navarro at some point. Um, one of the best bosses I've had and just a real smart guy all around. And he brought me over to SEIU and he called me up one day and said, Hey, I'm going to the Kerry campaign with James Jordan names that you might be, you might remember, he's like, would you like to come and work for John Kerry? And at the time I was also talking to somebody else I knew and really respected was working on the Edwards campaign. So I was talking to both of them. Really, it was for these people I really respected and liked. And I was thinking, you know, these are two candidates. I like John Kerry more than Edwards, but I liked Edwards too. Dean was in the mix. And so anyway, turns out I went to New Mexico for the Kerry campaign and we couldn't find a state director. <laughs> So I ended up becoming the de facto state director at the, for the first presidential ever, no idea what I was doing. And most people know that unless you're in Iowa or New Hampshire at that time, you really had no support. So here's this, you know, person who's fairly new first presidential campaign ever, just a lot of political organizing, which was fantastic. And there were other things, but yeah. So I ended up in New Mexico and I was like, how did I end up here? And by the way, who's giving me this kind of responsibility? This seems like a bad idea. <laughs> which happens on campaigns i think all the time so yeah so that's how i ended up in new mexico then incredibly interesting state what was different about new mexico than colorado politically well there's many things i find fascinating one of the things is it's it was at the time and i hope it's still the same it was what people consider minority majority so a lot of latinos you know a lot of um new mexicans a lot of spaniard spanish and i say that because it if you were in the North at the time, you district, very old generations, you know, haven't moved. The border moved on them. They'd been there, you know, and they consider themselves Spanish, not necessarily. And I'm saying the majority, I'm overly generalizing here, but they would consider themselves Spanish, not necessarily Latino or Hispanic. A lot of Spaniard blood. And um, that was really important. In the middle was Albuquerque, this tiny little city trying to be a bigger city. And the population was so spread out, it really was concentrated Santa Fe, which not everything in the north looks like Santa Fe, right? Like Santa Fe is a kind of like the boulder where it's a little bit, you know, it's a lot privileged. There's a lot going on there that brings in a lot of tourists. But Albuquerque was very different. And right around there, there are a lot of Pueblos. You know, I think there were 21, 2019 Pueblos each with its own distinct characteristics and history. So I got to see that, which was, I feel incredibly honored and grateful that I was able to meet a lot of indigenous Americans in the North too. And then there's the South, which is really where you have a lot of immigrants coming right over the border. Um, but there's a lot more there than that too. And so it was incredibly interesting to see this dis different Latino, Hispanic, Spanish population in a way that I had never seen it. Really how you can look at it as generations, right? So that was fascinating to me. And the Native American indigenous experience, Shiprock, Navajo country was just both devastating, but incredibly, I, I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to say it. It's, I was incredibly overwhelmed 
by the culture, by the people, but also the situation. If I wasn't on campaigns, I wouldn't be able to experience the things like that. There would be other ways, but I just ended up being able to really see and meet a lot of um, different perspectives, different lives. Why did you move from the Kerry campaign to America coming together? Jim Jordan Luis went over to America coming together, Ellen Malcolm, Harold Ickes, and Steve Rosenthal. Um, you know, started up America Coming Together, which is, I guess, the first big IE. Is that the first big independent expenditure campaign? It's a huge, it was a huge one. I think it was the the first ever, you know, at that size. And so, and you had those three, you know, really running this and a lot of the different carry people, as does happen, you know, different leadership came into the carry campaign and some of those leaders go over to ACT. And America Votes was also the, what part of that as well. Luis and Jim Jordan went over and Luis said, hey, I'm over here now. Would you like to come? <laughs> Would you like to come over? I was like, sure. You know, again, for me at the time, it's like, let me follow the people I trust and respect and, you know, know people in these states. And so I was very fortunate to be able to, you know, get asked to go over there. And I did, which was probably one of the best early formative experience around strategy that I had had. When I can think about what it looks like to put together a plan, a budget, a strategy, ACT was the first time that I got to do that. You were a state director for ACT also? Were you for? Yes. Yes. So what was the job? Yeah. So at the, you know, what ACT ended up doing was, of course, organizing. They weren't the campaign. So it was putting together a program basically against George Bush. But there was some pro-carry in that. We had a press. We had earned media. We had field. And, you know, politics. But really the politics landed up. I should say coalition politics on that side. Um, as did Kerry, but these were maybe the Dean folks, right? The people who didn't necessarily want to go directly for the Kerry campaign, but wanted to fight against George Bush. So we had a lot of that. We ended up setting up these events. I had this, this communications director, we worked together and she put together, for example, these huge, Dick Cheney came to New Mexico. We would organize these massive protests all along his drive route. And then of course, door to door work, direct voter contact, so I got to oversee that and frankly had built so many great relationships. I mean, meaning I met great people on the Kerry campaign that I also, you know, got to meet even more, but was able to lean on those who weren't directly with the Kerry campaign to help out with ACT. So yeah, it was a direct voter contact campaign that we would try to get a lot of earned media based on the decisions George was making. And I had some great consultants. And that's when I also was introduced into the DC culture <laughs> class because they, we have some of our own, like Jim Crounce, who, you know, is this great, um, great strategist and male consultant at the time. He, heart research, I had somebody from there and I had just met all these folks and they really helped me through it. So yeah, that's how I ended up at ACT. Oh, I should say this, it's really important. I don't know if you were there, there. I think at this point it was Mark Sullivan and it was the first time that we were trying to build an early vote, like at a large scale because there was a lot of mail and early vote in New Mexico into the system, into the CRM itself, which was interesting because New Mexico, a lot of it was handwritten at the time. You get the facts of the names of the people who, who voted. So that was my first entry with data to voter file and data. That's like six years before we merged the firms and pretty early in the building of the van. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I was like, yeah. this is amazing. <laughs> can um, capture and for work we're doing. This is fantastic. How did you take the loss of Kerry to Bush? It was my entry into national politics about what can happen and also what I knew. And, you know, my parents never really did the Republican versus Democrat piece. And we're in Colorado, right? You've got that 
there were certain things we didn't use we didn't used to talk about, which is religion and politics out in the West. We don't live right on top of each other because we don't really want to get into it. So for me, it wasn't really as much as partisan beliefs as much as the issues that they believe. I think it was also around people around my age going to war. And I think it was really, that was a really devastating part to see. He wasn't somebody like, let's say today, though, maybe I, this is hindsight. <laughs> when I look at, you know, the, the recent Republican president versus him, wow, I never could imagine there would have been somebody like Trump when Bush was there. And I almost, it almost made me want to miss Bush, right? So I think at the time, it was just really hard to see things I believed in lose. But also it reminded me that it used to not be as polarized as it is now. But it told me that people are, you can be friends, you can have very similar values and still not be for the same person. That was a learning experience too. A little bit later, you found yourself at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Oh yeah, how did I get there? How did you get there? <laughs> you know, Andy Grossman. I'm throwing out all these names of people you probably know. Um, Andy was at Act Two, and he had ran the DSCC for a moment. And I cannot remember. Oh, you know what? It may have been actually um, some folks I met over at um, initially in um, when I was in Colorado talking to the Edwards folks. When the DSCC, when I went there, it was totally turning over. So J.B. Persh was coming in. Senator Schumer was coming in. So all these new people were coming in. They were looking for staff. And Andy was like, you should think about the DSCC. It's a great committee. He's like, I'm very biased about it. But he's like, it's, it's a learning experience. You're not on a campaign, but you are servicing campaigns. And that's something that's important. You'd be introduced to the whole D.C. class. I was interviewed by, you know, my, my boss at the time became my boss for several, several years on several campaigns was Guy Cecil, who just stepped down from priorities. Who's one of the smartest people I know. I felt always very envious. He could read something, absorb it and know it immediately and know what to do with it. I would, it would take me five times that long to do what he could do. And I was just amazed by how quick he was. And then JB Persh, just such a fantastic human being. I've had both of those on the podcast. JB and Luis, I will say this, those two bosses and Andy, like, so I, I was very fortunate. I had these bosses who learned how I, who understood how I learned and how I worked. And I like to debate and they like to debate and they would push that to me. It's like, well, why do you think that? And I would say something and be like, well, that's not a good argument. And so we would debate it out and it would make me process and think. And that's when I saw what good managers could be. You know, when you start looking to manage to the person, not the monolith that everybody has the same learning style. I learned a lot from Guy. But yeah, those, you know, there's this style. And so I always thought, I don't want to go to DC. Aren't I going to be a sellout if I don't, if I go to DC and I have so much to do in the States and I just had these phenomenal experiences with different cultures? Do I really want to go to DC? But it worked. We flipped the, the Senate, which I think it's like anything. You don't know what you're getting into. You just work really hard and you try to support people on the ground. And here you go. Next thing you know, it's a historic night. So it was a great experience. Again, totally learned about the DC culture then. That's when I, I thought, wow, this is a whole different world. And it's not America. Yes, sure, you get support and a lot of things from DC, but you know, it's so that you can win in the States. That's where things happen. What did you learn from Guy that you remember? He did a lot of campaigns in states and coordinates at that time. And so I got to learn from him, again, like just really smart and strategic we just worked together in the same office, but like with Luis and others, I was desked by national folks, but I was in the same office with guys. So he 
honestly talking about goals, strategy, like here's the goal, work backwards from that, start thinking about all the different strategies and tactics that you have at your disposal. I think I learned a lot from about the consultant class, um, which you know we were inundated with, as you can imagine. Guy is also very data-driven. And so for me, not that the others weren't, but I really got to spend time talking to him and um, learning from him. He's also incredibly, though this is not what I learned from him because you know we're different people, but he's also very charismatic. He can walk into a room and own a room and you know be very articulate about what job is at hand, what we need to do. And so watching him do all those things was to me pretty impressive and something that I was like, well, I may not be able to walk into a room and do everything he can do, but I can learn how to prepare better strategies, you know, really understand how to work with consultants more. And so that's just off the, you know, off the top of my head, but I followed him too. There's a couple things in between, but then I followed him to Hillary too. So he was not an original hire at the Hillary campaign in 2008. He came in sort of in a layering situation, I think. So you showed up, the campaign is still organizing in some ways, but a lot has been going on. What what did it feel like coming over there to the political department? I mean, I feel, you know, like anything, Mike Henry, who's fantastic, um, was running, you know, all the politics and, and direct voter contact in the States. And a lot of people had been there together for now a year, you know, maybe close to a year. And for those who know on the presidential, there is something special about being first on board. doesn't matter how big or small, you're in this together. That's an incredibly important bonding experience. And so walking into that, it's always awkward to walk into a situation where you're not one of the first. And that, yes, like there was, I don't know if it was a layering, but it was, as you know, like a little bit of a restructuring where a guy had some of the early states and, and Mike, I think, still had um, Iowa and New Hampshire. So I can't remember the, the way it was split. It became you know huge. And I also just felt like, yeah, I knew a lot of people on the campaign, but I hadn't been there from the beginning. So you're trying to learn the style. You're trying to learn what they've been talking about, like what the strategy is that they've had. And for me, that's always been a difficult, I have to kind of learn things on my own. So I have to understand a little bit about how something started to understand where it gets to this point. So I just talked and listened and learned a lot from the people I knew from the DS and they got to explain a lot to me, but you know, it was fun. It was hard. That was a brutal, <laughs> that was a brutal primary for so many reasons. That was the Obama Clinton primary. And what are your observations kind of broadly about it? So many people I loved to work with and respected went over to Obama too. So you used to see the split, you know, well before that, before I went to New Mexico, I worked on this mayoral primary local primaries, whoosh, talk about, you know, talk about hard feelings. But at this level, you had two different candidates, both fantastic in their own way, really hard. And I learned there what it looks like when people you know and work with and respect and are friends with go on two different sides. That was hard. I got to say, I there's so many things I was impressed about with the Obama campaign. One was their discipline. Not that, you know, our campaign didn't have discipline. It was just there were so many people that they had known for 30 years in politics, you know, that it just really made it a lot different. A lot more people involved in every state, you know, at the higher levels. But with Obama, they were so disciplined. Look at this guy coming out of nowhere. I actually heard him speak when I was at either ACT or SEIU. He came and spoke to staff. And we were like, who is this guy? He's amazing. <laughs> like, who is he? And then it took me a while after he started running for president. Like, oh, my gosh, that was the guy we heard. That like, he was motivating, inspirational. And so you just saw this different kind of politician come in and he was pretty amazing. So those two things, both on their strategy, but also just 
him was pretty, you know, Hillary Clinton had all these fantastic and amazing qualities and is so smart and so such a leader and just, you know, like, you know, like her husband, like the president, kind of larger than life. Then you see somebody else enter the arena who's just new, um, doesn't come from that big name. And that was really, that was really interesting to see. And I was like, gosh, this is where I hate primaries. Like, can't they just run together? So that's what I learned from that. But yeah, that was hard fought. They did a great job. It was the place and time for him. You ran a couple campaigns, statewide campaigns after that, right? Oh, yes. When Clinton's campaign ended, you know, this guy in Oklahoma, he was representative in the state in the state house. Andrew Rice, his brother was killed at the World Trade Center. And also, you know, they had they had gone undergone the huge bombing in Oklahoma City. And so he had he was somebody who was so young. I think he was a couple years older than me. I mean, he had strong values. His family is fantastic. Um, but, you know, he had these things that shaped him that made him want to obviously make some huge changes. And he had some really um, many values that were important to him. He was incredibly progressive in Oklahoma. For those of you who have been to Oklahoma, um, you know, that it's not the most progressive place. And there's not necessarily an oasis of progressivism either. If it is, it's like two blocks. Um, and so Andrew, I think, was just fantastic. He just, he would constantly punch. He was like, I'm not going to be apologetic. I'm not going to change who I am. I'm going to run as this progressive in this state. He was, I think, born and raised in Oklahoma. But he's like, I'm going to run who I am. And that's going to have to, that's going to have to do this. And I'm going to, you know, take on this guy. And he just punched him at every turn. Like he just wasn't afraid to go after him. And so that was experience. That was a great experience to watch somebody say, you know what? I'm not going to change who I am. Andrew was like, I want to run to represent this entire state and I'm going to run as this. And so that was fascinating and amazing to see somebody say, nope, Jerry, you can't tell me this looks good from DC standpoint. This is who I am and this is who I want to be. So that was shaping too. You end up at the AFL CIO after a little while, right? Yes. Another connection. <laughs> Andy Grossman, my gosh. I'm throwing out all these names just because I think you'll know all of them and it's fun to reminisce. David Boundy, he worked at the AFL CIO. I don't remember when he went in there, but he worked for Steve Rosenthal, who I also had the opportunity to work for at ACT, which was, man, that guy's intense. Talk about somebody who is like a dog with a bone in the best of ways. You know, he scared the crap out of me. Um, <laughs> I was like afraid to, to say anything. He would come to New Mexico and Luis was like, don't say anything stupid. I'm like, I'm going to try, but I don't think that's going to be possible. So, so was Bounty the director of the campaigns department? That yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was this huge, like Rich Trump, President Rich Trumka. Um, you know, just a phenomenal man. I'm really, you know, sad that he had passed, he's passed away. Basically wanted to see, you know, obviously the union movement was certain, we're moving in a certain direction, right? Uh, memberships declining. So they wanted to see how could they best support state federations and local councils and work with their affiliates in a better way. Like they wanted to, you know, basically reshape the way the AFL-CIO worked with its affiliates and fe and federation chapter. So, and they also wanted to run better, more effective campaigns with less money, right? Less money, all those things. So he came in and reached out and said, hey, what's Jerry Prado doing? And Bounty and I had met at one point and I ended up going in with him. Every experience I have is a learning experience. That was a learning experience, learning the labor movement inside and out. I was only there for three years, but... I had a lot of great Sherpas, you know, people who are state fed presidents, affiliate staff, and, you know, just people I got to learn from. But just the culture was so different. It's like, how could there be this culture? And it's so close. 
but yet also just seeing this terrible decline. Now, I think we're in a little bit of a different place now. It was really, truly an amazing experience. And I got to, like everything else, visit a lot of different states. They look different from different perspectives. I got to work in Ohio for a Senate race, going back to work with people in Ohio from a labor perspective, totally different and just incredibly interesting. I'd never been in a world like that. Did you um, run across Mike Podhorzer during that? Yeah, time? Pod. Pod and Mike. So Pod ran the political department, which had like think the think the mail program, you know, the analytics, the data, and then um, Bounty had like the you know the work with the affiliates. Though the political department did that too, but you know just different ways. So and those two are like those two are real tight. They worked together before at the AFL-CIO, both for Rosenthal and Pod has been there the whole time. But yeah, Pod Pod and my dog are close. I was never allowed to bring in my dog to the AFL-CIO, but I snuck him in. They caught me on camera one time. My dog would go straight to Mike Podhorzer's office and just, you know, hang out with him. But yeah. I just <laughs> interviewed him uh, the oh. other day. And uh, I, had, I had not met him before. It was very fun to interview him, but he corrected the assumptions in every question just about that. I totally. That sounds yeah. right. Yeah. That tracks. Yeah. No, <laughs> listen, the guy has so much experience. He's been able to do a lot of things that affect the entire political landscape, not just unions. He's got a lot of great knowledge. I haven't talked to him in a while, but he is, you know, he's a, he's definitely interesting. And I really, I really enjoyed getting to, to work with him too. Why'd you leave? Why did I? Oh, I was so burned out. This is the first time I realized what burnout was. That experience of, oh my gosh, I'm exhausted. My health is failing. I'm not being as social as I used to be. That was the first moment. And so I think that was 2016. That was what I first experienced burnout. And I couldn't do it anymore. I loved it. I love the people. I frankly, you know, still miss them. I still talk to a lot of them especially Secretary Schuler, now President Schuler, so amazing to see. She was such a mentor for me and her staff. I was managing a staff or a department at that point of about 90 people to 100 people. And I just couldn't do it. I honestly was exhausted. Yeah, it happens. It happens. But again, I had not, I think it's like at some point your age hits it. There's a million things that hit it. And I will say the thing that I've realized too in, in retrospect is what always motivated me and what I what made me so excited about campaigns is I got to meet different people in different states and go out to where that's who you're working to represent and to work for. And I didn't get to do that as much. So that D.C. experience started, I mean, at the DSCC, I got to travel a ton, the AFL-CIO less, but I still wasn't in the states doing the, the tough work. And so I think that not having that kind of made me think, oh, I'm, I feel like sometimes more of a bureaucrat or administrator, less somebody out there fighting the fight. What was the progressive agenda committee? <laughs> oh, darn it. I can't believe you brought that up. Um, <laughs> no, actually mayor de Blasio in New York at the time um, and a consultant who I knew said, Hey, would you be at all interested in this? Because he caught me at a couple of economic inequality seminars, which I found, you know, I, the problem itself so massive, but also fascinating and he was working on that. And I'd worked with that media consultant before. Mayor de Blasio had started working with, you know, just a lot of partners. And they did a huge press event and other events around economic inequality, income inequality. And this is pre-Bernie. So this is pre-Senator um, Sanders. So he's like, I really want to get this issue out there. I mean, Hillary Clinton's another person who's been huge on this issue. But he's like, I'd love to build an organization that's focused on 
economic inequality, like huge coalition, bring people together to lift up the issue. Enter Senator Sanders into the mix. Then you're like, oh, wait, it's out there. It's out there. So, uh, you know, that was something where I thought, you know, the issues were really interesting. I got to meet a whole different coalition of people um, working, you know, New York for a split second. Though watching those staffers who worked for the city hall, I was like, God bless you. God, you know, Godspeed. Um, so anyway, it was, you know, well-intended. I love that he lifted up this issue or, he, you know, that was his focus. But the second Senator Sanders came in, the issue was out, right? Like, you, so you I need to do any more work. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they've got it now. And so I think his whole purpose was to really influence that race. And, you know, with Senator Sanders and, and stepping in, boom, it's out there. Who did you find yourself rooting for in the Sanders Clinton? I'm a Clinton person, but also Sanders. I got to be honest with you, that he brought up thing. I love that he was unapologetic about what he was going to bring up in the healthcare issue. Of course, is huge. I thought, look at this guy, and and also just watching somebody who's older galvanize all these younger voters was just to me like fascinating. But yeah, I have to say, you know, Senator Clinton. I didn't get to work with her a ton, but when I did, was I was just in awe of her and just how smart she was, but also how kind she was. I don't think people get to see that side of her, but I root um, Hillary Clinton all the way. But yes, Sanders was pretty phenomenal. A little stint at Everybody Votes. Oh, yes. So it's actually, oh gosh, this fantastic woman named Kim Rogers. I hope everybody gets to know her. I've interviewed her too. Democratic Association of Secretaries of States. Love Secretaries of States, love Attorneys General, love all the elections. But she... She worked with a group of people and to start up this organization that was brilliant. And so, you know, she called me, we were friends and we were talking and she's like, oh, you, you know, you left there. How about helping stand this up as, and helping put together the program um, and working with the program staff at Everybody Votes? And this was after she told me what it was, which I thought was just such a, such a necessary and great organization that focused on registering more people of color. But, you know, they themselves did not register. What they did was put a lot of data to it. So if you were giving money to organizations, then you would figure out how many people that you registered, the exact people, and then if they voted, they'd follow them along the way. Sounds like a simple chore, right? But usually, you know, so many organizations, when the donors or foundations give out money, they don't really know what happens to it after that and if it, you know, really impacted. So what they would do at Everybody Votes is fund these local groups, to do this great work because they were very interested in seeing how is our work impacting. So the funding came out of there, the data tracking went out of there and there were other things that went along with it. And I I think it's still going strong, but having all these local partners and like a national partner at state voices, if you're familiar with them, they would be an interesting group to bring on if you haven't had them on either. What I loved was they're funding the States. It wasn't like these DC people coming in saying, here's how you register your people in states, which tends to happen a lot. This is really homegrown with a strong accountability to see how is this program being impacted from a numerics or numbers perspective. I noticed you spent more time at Emily's List maybe than any job beforehand. <laughs> yeah. Listen, another fantastic woman, Denise Ferriozzi, was like, hey, Emily's List wants to expand the state and local program. And I, let me tell you, Ellen Malcolm to me is, I'm like that woman. I I love her so much. Like she is an act. I, she got, she came out to New Mexico all the time. I, or a couple times, I can't tell you how many people came to the tarmac for Ellen Malcolm. I think we got more people for Ellen Malcolm than John Mellencamp, by the way, in 2004. I mean, what she built is so smart. And then there happened to be this amazing woman, Stephanie Shriok, 
who, when I was managing campaigns, was, I think, one of the only women like running big things and on big campaigns and then, you know, ran these amazing races. And by the way, it's just such a good person, right? Like just such a good person, but really smart. She was running Emily's List, was the president there. But when I heard that they were expanding the state and local program, I'm like, I am in. At that point, it's like, I don't, you know, federal, I love, there's such an importance for it, but there's so many people in the federal game, right? For me, it's state and local and so much can happen. So yeah, I went there. I was able to build a team and really work. I mean, Stephanie completely supported and built out that state and local program. It was Ellen's dream to see the program build. I loved it. Best job I've ever had. Best job I've ever had. I'd never worked with so many women. <laughs> that was the first time I was like, whoa, look at, I am not the only woman, woman of color at a table with all white men. Nothing against white men, Nathaniel. But my point is I'd never been like that. I remember walking into NARAL or walking into Emily's List and just being like so rare for the time. You know what happens? Meetings end on time. <laughs> but seriously, it is a different dynamic. And looking at, I think anybody who's my age who came up around that time, you almost walk into rooms like I got to fight for my perspective because I'm going to be with like about a lot of guys and I got to show that I can match them in the debate and I have to like go in there a little bit stronger. It's And so there's that shift for me has been hard. I'll be very honest about, I think one of my biggest flaws is to be able to switch from that, like, got to go in there, got to be tough, got to make sure that I'm heard because I'm not used to that in these rooms with all these older men who've done a lot more than I have, but I have an opinion. So I got to fight for my opinion to be heard. That's been a hard thing for me to switch moving to like Emily's list. Now there's a younger generation who's going to have to save us from the bad choices that we made. But yeah, it's been learning now different ways of working in different environments. I don't know that I've done it well, but you know, Emily's this was the first time I was like, whoa, I, I've never seen anything like this. Look at all these women in a room making decisions. That's crazy. <laughs> Did you feel like in your career along the way, you had to be pretty aware of your, your ethnicity, your gender all the along the way? Yeah, you know, gender was always one. And I, I'd say that's even before coming into politics. But ethnicity, I've never wanted to be the person who was, you know, oh, look at the Latina. I wanted to be the person who was substantive, who had the skills. And by the way, this is who I am. This is part of who I am. What I've noticed is people don't, I mean, let me tell you, for my family, I'm not saying this is true. We're loud. And we fight over dumb things. And it's over in a second. So what I realized is, that type of thing walking into certain places is not okay and acceptable. Like it's actually scary to people. It feels a little bit like, you know, oh my gosh, she's coming at me. I'm like, no, I'm, you know, I'm forcing my opinion. And then you might think I'm angry, but a minute later I won't be. Okay. So I had to be very conscious at some point of that. But that sounds like it may have also served you when you were dealing with older yeah. white men or something. Yeah. And you know, and when I was saying earlier that I had some managers who just respected the debate, and, and saw that in me. They never took it personally. It was just like, then I'm going to push you. If that's the way you're going to learn, that, I'm going to push you on your thoughts and your, like whatever premise you're bringing me, let's push you on that. And that worked well for me. And then, yes, I felt like, especially at places, you know, like the AFL-CIO, you can imagine what those round tables look like. And also I wasn't from labor. I wasn't a card carrying member. And so at that point, you know, what I had to do was balance, like, I don't know everything for sure. They have experienced something that I haven't. They have built this, this movement from the beginning. I am a person who's bringing a certain skill set. 
I also had to, yeah, at times kind of make sure that my, you know, if I was here to give you an opinion based on facts and what I'm seeing, then yes, I need to be a little bit more assertive about that in a room full of people who've been working together for 30 or 40 years, who many of them happen to be men. Speaking of cultural differences, going over to ActBlue, which is really a technical organization, albeit also in politics, that must have been a little different culturally also. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. A political organization that has this great, amazing payment platform that really lowers the barrier of entry. Yeah. Different culture for three reasons. <laughs> Maybe you and I talked a little bit about this. One, the tech space, learning people from the tech space. Totally different way of trying to get to the same endpoint, but the way of working out problems and working out strategy is different. They do research maybe different the way that political people do research. So that's one thing. The second was a younger generation coming in who, by the way, as you know, in their sleep can do things that I can't do when it comes to digital online work. Like they, they, I don't even understand some of the things. So that's a second, so much to learn from them. And, you know, also coming in at a really hard time in our, in our space. And I think in the, in the country and the world and progressive politics and then I'd say the third thing is it's a political organization. But, you know, again, when you have tech people from the tech industry and you have people who are, you know, out of college but are true believers and passionate, and being one of the only like almost political hacks in there was hard. So like learning that bridge, because that means I had to learn a lot about the tech. I didn't get to as much as I wanted to. But those three things to me were like, whoa, what a huge learning experience that I got to, I got to go into here in the first six months. I, I met the founders back in the early two thousands, Ben and Matt. And then I, I interviewed Aaron, uh, who ran it for a long time, um, on the podcast a number of years ago. I still don't think I really know act blue very well. How would you characterize it as an organization and what does it do well? And what does it not do well? Listen, I think Aaron, Matt and Ben's idea was fantastic and they could explain it better than I could. And they're thinking about it at the time that Dean came on, came on the scene. Aaron took this and it was a juggernaut. And what it did is it made it very easy. It made it very easy and very safe to process payments. Now I'm really breaking it down to a couple of tactics, but I think it's so much more. So what, you know, Aaron was able to do was build and scale along the way. It was small then built and scaled. Now, I don't know if she scaled as much as she needed because she was she and a small group of people were doing a tremendous amount of work. But I think it works because, again, really easy to sign up, no contracts, safe, easy, and reliable. I mean, it became the brand name, even though they're not the only payment processor for campaigns, they became the brand name and kind of the default choice in a lot of ways. I think on the federal level, absolutely. I mean, they ran up to a lot of people working there, right? How, how big yeah. is it nowadays? Gosh, now it's over 300, just over 300. What are all those people doing? Sure. I mean, that's a good question. They're, I mean, obviously half of that is tech, you know, engineers, product, research, data on the analytics side of, you know, the actual tool. Then there's, because it's not a for-profit, it's not sales. It's more like take an organizing, take an or organizing mindset to bringing in more people on the tool. And, you know, to build into a different space, which are nonprofit, state and local, you need some more people who, who um, you know, can help go beyond the federal. Now, there's also customer service, which does fantastic work and partners really closely with like the people who are, you know, doing, let's say, client development a success. 
But the other thing that they all do really well is they walk consumers through the product. They're there for them all the time. They're fairly reliable. Um, and so a lot of people are doing that. And then there's a comms and marketing team. There's people, culture, HR, there's general counsel. So there's a lot of administrative work that needs to be done alongside all of that. So it's both, you know, people who know the market and worked in this market, which is, I would say, the political nonprofit side. And then there's the tech, the people who know how to build really amazing things. Bring those two worlds together. It could be just phenomenal, but you have to get through the, the language and the cultural barrier. Some other people that started payment processing companies, say in the nonprofit space or elsewhere, ended up expanding the suite of tools to be like CRM tools or lots of other things. ActBlue has mostly maintained a focus, sounds like probably scrambling to keep up with the demands of scaling what they did. I've also heard that they end up sitting on quite a lot of cash because of tips and and payment processing. Do Do you think that they've been ambitious enough about the scope of their efforts? Or what do you think like the if you had to offer an alternate vision for that enterprise, what would you say? Well, I think, you know, I'm not there anymore. Recently, I'm not there anymore. I think what Aaron, Matt, and Ben built is pretty phenomenal. And there's something that's really reliable. All the things, again, when I say it doesn't have contracts, that's incredibly important for state, local nonprofits that don't, you know, have all that money. I'd say this is what you're asking about is the next, is the future. Like now Aaron is, you know, Aaron has stepped down, there's a new CEO who's come on board who comes from the tech industry and has, you know, some political experience. Who is that? Her name is Regina Wallace-Jones. What does she bring? I don't know her. She has been an executive in tech companies for a long time. Very smart. Um, she also was the mayor for two years in East um, Palo Alto. So she's she's public service. She volunteered on Hillary's and Obama's campaigns. So, you know, she is about public service, but yet has this phenomenal tech background, which you know, in political tech, you have some great engineers and product managers, but having somebody at that level enter the space, I think is fantastic. So I think that's going to be what she figures out, you know, what she and Matt and Ben and the rest of the board and the staff figure out what is next. Because to your point, how do you not have a one size fits all? How do you serve, you know, presidential, Senate, massive house races or really large nonprofits when they have digital staff on board? They can work more with more sophisticated tools, analytics, whereas somebody who's coming in is like, I am a one-person house race. I'm just going to try to use it as a payment processor. You want to get them to the point where they can understand all these analytics, everything at your disposal. You can actually really rely on ActBlue's analytics and the data to figure out how you can improve your program. But if you're a one-person operation, it looks very different than if you're a presidential. The tools, the integrations, insert here, is going to look different or needs to look different for larger organizations. So I think that's what they're going to be looking at probably, I'm assuming, you know, at some point soon. It's somewhat unusual to build sort of a software-based operation in a nonprofit entity. How do you think that affected the culture of the enterprise? Did people like pride themselves in the nonprofit nature of it? Did it make it harder or easier to attract and retain talent? How do you think that that played out or do you have any opinion about it? On the mechanics side, I mean, that's a great bed and mat question. For the culture side, and an Aaron too, but um, I would say one thing that is it was striking to me and still is, is how many people 
care about progressive politics in that organization, whether they've been a part of it or not. And there's so many who haven't been like on a campaign and nonprofit, but that doesn't mean that they don't bring a passion and, you know, a deep desire to improve the progressive space. I could think of maybe one or two people in a large organization who's like, I'm not here for the progressive politics. And I don't even know if that's the case, but everyone cared, you know, for the people who just started, that's why they come to ActBlue. You mean I get to be an engineer at this progressive organization? If that's your sweet spot, that's pretty amazing. It shares that among everyone in that organization as a culture. It also means people have a lot of strong opinions, right? And so that can get infused into what kind of tools or services you provide, whether it's from the political side or the tech side. And so I think the new leadership, you know, at this level is organizing those thoughts and those ideas, whether it's around data, more sophisticated tools, that's going to be what they're going to figure out what is next. But I think it shapes the culture tremendously. The tech, I will say the other thing that is hard is coming from profit organizations, walking into more of a political organization and a not-for-profit, you know, this world is clannish. Politics is a really clannish space. It's not like this huge industry. Most people think we're volunteers, right? At least my parents did for probably until last year. So coming in from that space, it's not that just you can say, hey, just give them a really good deck and show that it's going to get them all this money. Yes, they want to hear certain things, but it's not that simple. Everybody's known ActBlue at the federal level. You don't need to you don't need to sell them on ActBlue. You do need to sell them on the tools and what they can provide for you. So I'd say like that to me, watching people come in from, you know, banking industries or others was, I believe, hard to watch because you got to learn a little bit of the space, having an understanding that it's not just simply for profit. That's not what we're here for, which is why I think Regina is interesting, right? She brings public service and the tech space. That's going to be, I think, an interesting and helpful perspective, but it's hard to learn. And I think that, you know, people from the for-profit space just see that it's an easy thing to transfer over here. And it's not because of what we've all done and come from. You seem to have a title, something like chief impact officer. What was your role exactly? (laughs) That's a good question. The question everybody asks in another space, I think would be called client development and success, client success. But also we had a partnerships program. One of the things that we started looking at was how can you invest more in infrastructure, in infrastructure, data, research, technology, and have those conversations with progressive space. So a lot of those were kind of under my purview. Again, there's the political and the nonprofit side of client development and success. There's also a data component to this because while you have the ActBlue side of the actual payment processor, you also want to build CRMs and data to show what your customers like and want. There was a department under under me for that. We had people on board who were fantastic. And what we started to do is bring in more people who had been on campaigns, run campaigns, nonprofit work. So, you know, we expanded a little bit there to bring in a lot of different skill sets to partner with the already great skill sets there. But yeah, it's large. Think of all the people who interact externally. With the exception of customer service, though we provided customer service in a different way, um, but customer service and then the comms marketing shop. But so everything else was under this. We'll see how that looks. But, you know, the other piece was how do you expand to state, local, and nonprofit? So we really focused on that as well. So it's all the things external that are how do you get more people on this and how do you get more people using this? So, yeah, the title itself. I think Prince Harry had that title. I'm like, what the heck does that mean? So I always have to explain what I do before I want to get into a conversation, which is probably a good sign that that wasn't the best title. You've just recently left a couple months ago. 
it seems suspiciously close to a new CEO coming in and maybe making changes to bring her own people in. But what's the circumstances of you leaving? Listen, it's a huge organization. Just like anything else, I think you got to figure out, is this the size of the staff you need? And I think also, what does the future of you know the political department look like or the political work? This is a question for her. But yeah, I don't see this as a good or a bad. It's just what it is. Anybody you know who's coming into an organization will want to have their team. And hopefully, you know, that's the team that they have in place. But if not, and they have different ideas. Time to both figure out, do you need that position? And is this the person you want in that position? So the position was zeroed out. And they have a lot of great political staff who I, you know, think are pretty fantastic. So I think they're going to continue to do that great work. And then, you know, whatever Regina is going to envision of that organization, you got a lot of people on and you see what's happening in the tech industry. You got to really evaluate what you need. And I don't want to say go to bootstraps because that doesn't sound right. And I don't want to, you know, say that's what they're looking at at all, but I think you got to figure out what, what is critical, especially for a tech organization, right? What is critical in your needs? So where does that leave you? What do you want to do? It's a really good question. I mean, this is the first time that I can stop and not think of the ambitious route, right? All these great places I've worked where the values have been so important to me, but also thinking of like, what's next, what's next, what's next. This is the first time that I get to think about, okay, I'm at a different point in life. I'm not just entering the space. I'm towards, you know, the higher, I don't want to say end of my career, but um, I hope I'm around a lot longer than that. But so now I want to figure out what do I want to do? I want to go back to what do I want to do when I grow up, which is a funny thing to say, but I haven't really had that opportunity to sit and think about that in a really long time. I know what's important to me, but what does the job look like? Who am I managed by? Those things are critical for me. We've just reviewed some portion of your career. When you look back across that, what were the high points that like you think, wow, I really felt right. The place I was working, the job I had, what stands out when you just look real quickly at that? Sure. I'd say again, Emily's, this was the best place because I was, first of all, I always wanted to work for pro-choice women. Everything about it, you know, really looking at continuing to increase the amount of women, but also at the state level and the local level, that to me, Felt great and taking my experience of running campaigns, you know, being the call time director. Do you regret leaving Emily's List? Would you go back? Well, part of the other reason I left Emily's List is I was burnt out. Yeah. And I okay. thought, like, I kept getting progressively more burnt out. And my thought was, actually, would be not easier, but I wouldn't be at 12, 16 hours a day all the time. That was not the case <laughs> when you're, when you're scaling. I mean, talk about a learning experience. So I, I, the person who's running the program is fantastic. So I think that that was good. But uh, do I regret leaving? Sure. Because I just loved it. And I loved, you know, so many people who worked there, I really loved. And I, Ellen and Stephanie are two amazing leaders that I got to learn from. Would you want to go to another political tech operation? I don't know. You know, what I'm interested in, what I think is fascinating is nowadays, like think about how many, not problems, but things about how how many things we could solve with political tech. And I do believe the Democratic establishment were behind on that, both thinking about how can tech health solve problems with voting administration, I should say. How can we actually lend to those solutions? I find that to be fascinating. But I think being in a smaller, like, you know, smaller organization or smaller um, group of people trying to solve some big problems would be really interesting. 
Is there any that you've looked around, any organizations you've looked around at and been intrigued by that you thought this is the type of place? No. Now, that's not to say there aren't great organizations doing work. I think there are different parts I really like, but I don't know that there's anything out there that looks like what I'm thinking on the political tech side at the same time. This is the question. Do I want to go back to more straight politics? Yeah. All these things I don't quite know yet, but I think right now I'm like, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Like the movement cooperative, which I think you're going to talk to Julie at some point, you know, the nonprofit data and tech infrastructure like that. Talk about such a great need for something like that, right? A coalition of people really thinking about how to solve some problems in the nonprofit space. with data. I mean, it strikes me that with the kind of deep exposure you've had to the progressive ecosystem that some organization that is in politics but doesn't necessarily know politics like some of the political tech they might well be able to use you yeah maybe that was one of the hardest things about working at the last job i had being one of the only political people there at a senior level is really hard hard to communicate with people who didn't understand the same language or this is oversimplifying what maybe people have thought, but what is it what you do when you're on a campaign or a nonprofit? Again, are you a volunteer? Do you raise money? What do you do? You know, I think, you know, are you going door to door? Like, what are you doing? There's a thought of, but it's not like a business. And I'm like, well, everything's a business. If you, you know, put everything as, you know, under small B here, which is you still have a budget, you still have research, you still do all these things. It's just not in a for-profit. Unless you're already working in political tech, you don't have all the professionalization of the staff as, you know, maybe those who come in again, I'll say the financial industry. And so you have to be the one to not only say, here's how this works. Here's, you know, what's going to be acceptable and here's what we should do. So you got to go through all of that. And I think that's really hard. Um, So I don't know if I want to be the only one. One thing I do know is I do, if I do go into political tech, I want there to be, you know, more political people there. Because most of the things, though, you might completely disagree with me, there's so many smart engineers and product managers. They know how to solve those problems. Most of the problems within our space are political problems. They are, how do you get everybody to use the same thing? They're all the things that you had to do with NGP and VAN. And those are political problems. I have no lack of confidence that there are enough smart people who can really help build things and think of innovative ways on the tools and tech side. But I think it's largely political. That's interesting. Is there a question I should have asked you that I haven't? Um, why can't you hold a job? No, when you look at a political person's resume, and when you and I were going through this, I think it's really hard to explain. Why'd you keep going from campaign to campaign? Well, they only last two years. I don't think there is. I appreciate your tour through it and hearing about it and catching up with you a little bit. Um, yeah, I hope people are still awake after that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was really good to see you. I mean, again, you were, I, I remember us in the Boston office, that building that I think was condemned a couple of years later. <laughs> that was, they carefully chose a, I remember the campaign manager saying she was choosing it so that, that Hillary would not look like the queen of Sheba. <laughs> oh, they mission accomplished. Totally succeeded. It was just getting internet working in that building was non-trivial. So. I don't remember if we had the internet. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we did, but it took a while. Yeah. At the beginning. Oh, we had these blackjacks. Remember those phones? Those terrible little phones that are called blackjacks. They're, they're in blackberries. Oh, anyway. yeah. They're, yep. Political, tech, political technology. <laughs> I guess. There. Anyway, uh, anything else you want to say? No, thank you so much. It was, yes, great catching up with you. And 
thanks for thinking that what I've done is interesting and putting me on this on this podcast. I was looking at who's been on here. I was like, oh, well, this is going to be a good snoozer. <laughs> I don't think people will think that. That was Jerry. She's at Jerry Prado on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.